0: Story 17 of Stories Weird and Wonderful This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Annabelle Smith Stories Weird and Wonderful by J. E. Muddock Story 17 The Dream That Came True A Woman's Story In the autumn of the year 18-blank, I went down to a quiet little village in the borderland of Dumfriesshire, intending to spend a few weeks there for the sake of rest and change. For three years, I had been engaged in teaching in Glasgow, and overstudy, together with the climate and smoke of that grimy city, had undermined my health, so that rest and quiet had become an imperative necessity. I went to the village I speak of, by the advice of my doctor who told me that the air was bracing, the country round about delightful, and the place a perfect sleepy hollow, while I should be able to live there for, as he put it, an old song. This to me was a great consideration, for my purse was slender, and I was a delicate woman, dependent upon my own exertions for a livelihood. Under these circumstances, my doctor's recommendation was not to be ignored, and through his instrumentality, I obtained lodgings in a small farm, Occupied by kindly and homely people who knew little of the world beyond their own neighborhood The good wife was some sixty years of age and dearly loved a crack She was chatty and gossipy and seemed to know the histories of all the people in the village and its neighborhood from their birth upwards In the course of a week, she had enlightened me as to who everyone was Seeming to take a keen delight in repeating every little bit of scandal with a running commentary of her own I was not particularly interested in the old body's chatter, but it rather amused me than otherwise, and as it seemed to afford her pleasure, I allowed her to rattle on while I was content to sit in a large old fashioned chair and doze in dreamy indolence. I was mindin', she said to me one day, regretfully, that there's ane a near person that I haven't held to aboot, but the fact is I dinna can ought about her myself. We caught her the mystery. But she's a pure daft-like creature, and is no muckle worth troubling about. My interest was at once thoroughly aroused, for I saw instantly that my landlady's disrespectful way of speaking arose from a sense of wounded vanity at not having been able to learn anything about this mysterious person who, I felt sure, must be remarkable, since she had been able to defy the prying impertinence of this old woman. Indeed, I remarked. And where does this mystery live? Well, maybe you've been an old, ragged-looking house just beyond the village there to the east? It stands in a bit of ground, and has a lot of green stuff growing up it. I had to confess that I had not noticed this particular house, whereupon my entertainer expressed great surprise, and went on to inform me that for a long time it had been without a tenant, but at last had been bought by its present occupant who had resided in it ever since, with one servant, an old woman, who, according to this dear old gossip's account, was wa than the mistress, for folk couldna get a thing ill to her. I was amused at the indignant way in which my landlady spoke, as though she considered, and as a matter of fact she did so consider, that she and the little community had been scandalized and outraged by this mysterious lady not at once proclaiming her whole history for the benefit of the gossips. To her it seemed really shameful, but to me this reticence presented itself in the light of a virtue, and I felt drawn towards the unknown lady by a bond of sympathy. She bore the somewhat uncommon name, as I learnt, of Slark, Mrs. Lydia Slark. She went to the village church every Sunday, owed no one a penny in the place, was quiet and uncommunicative, and neither visited nor received visitors. This was the sum and substance of what was known about her, and a person could thus keep her affairs to herself, in so small a community, was sure to be looked upon with suspicion, and spoken of as a mystery, while dark hints might even be dropped that such a remarkably reticent person must be in league with the evil one himself. Now, being a woman, my curiosity was naturally stimulated by this information, and though I did not like tittle-tattle and never concerned myself about other folks private business i could not avoid a secret desire to know something of the mysterious lady who had so successfully defied the scrutiny of a whole village a day or two later i made my way towards the residence of mrs It was a somber day, and the brown withered leaves, last sad relics of summer glories, lay thickly strewn about the roads and lanes ever and anon being whirled around in little columns by the fitful gusts of wind that swept across the land, heralding the approach of winter. Little of the house could be seen from the road, owing to intervening trees and shrubs. Wishing to get a better view of it, I pushed open the heavy iron gate which creaked with a sort of complaint at being disturbed from its rusty indolence. I advanced for some yards up the pathway, until I was enabled to obtain a full view of the building. It was a large, old-fashioned brick house, the walls almost hidden from view by clustering ivy. The grounds were overgrown with weeds and rank grass, and there was not a single patch of cultivation to relieve the eye. The entrance to the house was by a porch, over which a wild honeysuckle had straggled in the wildest disorder and hung down in ragged festoons, giving the place a forlorn and neglected appearance. With one exception, every window was shrouded by a dingy yellow blind. Before the porch, in the center of a little circular plot of rusty green grass, was a fountain with a stucco basin, in which were a few inches of dirty water and a figure that had fallen from its pedestal. It was a composition statue of a female half-draped, but now it was covered with slime and dirt. As I gazed on all this desolation, I thought of Edgar Allan Poe's House of Usher, and I almost expected to see this neglected building sink with a crash beneath my feet. As I was about to turn and leave the grounds, I was suddenly arrested by the shrill trilling of a canary, and, looking in the direction from whence the sounds proceeded, I saw that the little songster was hung in a gilded cage at the only window not screened by a blind. But it was not the only thing I saw, for a lady was standing there also. I felt ashamed of myself for having thus intruded, and commenced to retrace my steps, but before I was hidden by the trees, I heard a cough, and, looking round, saw the lady on the doorstep. I felt now that I could not retreat without some few words of excuse for my rudeness. So, going back, I began to stammer forth something about my being a stranger in the place and to mumble apologies for intruding on her privacy. I noted that the lady was about fifty years of age and of commanding presence. She had once been beautiful, and even then there were traces of beauty remaining, though sorrow and time together had ploughed ruts in the once fair brow. She had soft, tender blue eyes, and the hair, though iron-gray, was abundant, and braided in thick plaits, which were twisted round the head somewhat in the old German fashion. In the face itself, there was such an expression of sadness that I felt drawn towards her, a sadness that was by no means expelled, but rather emphasized by the smile with which she greeted me. "'You seem interested in my poor abode,' she remarked in a musical and plaintive voice. "'I am afraid I have been excessively rude,' I replied. "'But the fact is—' "'Pray do not excuse yourself,' she returned kindly. "'I saw that you were a stranger, for I know by sight all the people round about. "'It is not often I am honoured with visitors, more especially a lady, "'and if you will please to come in and partake of my humble hospitality.' You are very welcome i was naturally astonished at this freely proffered invitation for i had been led to imagine that the owner of the house was a morose surly person who shunned all intercourse with her fellows but instead of that i found her charming in every respect and proffering me hospitality without the slightest knowledge as to who i was I understood at once that she was a superior person, and had silently resented the impudent attempts of her neighbors to probe her heart. You are very kind, I answered, but the fact is I am somewhat of a valetudinarian. I have overworked myself in Glasgow, and came down here for rest and change. My intrusion on your privacy cannot be excused. Pray, say no more, she exclaimed with such heartiness that I was completely set at rest, and she extended her hand to me a hand that was soft and white. I was much struck by the spontaneous cordiality to an utter stranger, and, producing my card-case, I gave her my card and mentioned the name of my doctor on whose recommendation I had come down. "'Pray come in! Pray come in!' she said, in her pleasant, persuasive way, as she glanced at my card. I followed her through the dimly-lighted hall into the room at the window of which the canary still warbled. It was a dingy, musty apartment. The paper on the walls was greatly discolored by age, while the carpet was so faded that it had become a dirty grey. Half a dozen lumbering mahogany chairs, a round table, a small well-stocked bookcase, and a mirror over the mantelplace, together with a massive marble clock and a few ornaments, constituted the whole of the furniture. But I noted at one end of the room hanging in the center of the wall that faced the light was a very massive picture-frame, but I could not determine then as to what the frame contained, for it was partly screened by a black velvet curtain, which was only a little smaller than the frame itself. When I had taken a rapid survey of the room, the strange occupant of the house motioned me to be seated. "'Although we are strangers,' she said, "'I am so glad you have come. It is years since I have received a visitor.' And when I saw one of my own sex in the garden, I could not resist the temptation to break the monotony I have so long endured. Surely, madam, I began, feeling that I was being drawn towards this woman in an unaccountable way, it must have been a strange cause that induced you to immure yourself in such a way, for I may frankly state that I have heard in the village that you lead a hermit sort of life. Yes, she answered with a sigh, the cause is strange, but let me offer you some refreshment. In spite of my protest, she rang the bell, and the old woman, who had been described to me as Wa than the mistress, appeared, and her mistress bade her put some luncheon on the table in another room. In a few minutes, the luncheon was announced as ready, and during the time that we were partaking of it, my hostess, with tact and skill, managed to learn a good deal about myself. I found her charming and irresistible, and by the time the meal was finished, I really felt as if I could tell her anything, and that instead of having known her for a brief hour, I had known her for years. Luncheon finished, she invited me to return to the parlor. We chatted away for some time, and she gradually grew more confidential, and on my remarking, Although I know nothing of your history, I venture to give expression to my sympathy, for I am sure that... Only some great sorrow could have driven one so accomplished as yourself into such exile as this. She turned away for a few moments as if overcome with emotion, which my words had aroused. Then she answered, You are right. It was a great sorrow, and one as unexpected as it was overwhelming. You see that frame, pointing to the frame on the wall, it contains a portrait. For years it has hung there, as you see, but I have never dared to gaze upon it. Your visit here has awakened many bitter memories, and has served to accentuate my loneliness. It has produced in me a strange longing to break the spell by which I seem to be surrounded, and I crave for sympathy and comfort. You will think me strange and eccentric, no doubt, but if you knew my sorrow you would excuse me. Indeed, I do excuse you as it is, I said, endeavoring to express by my tone how truly sympathetic I was. Women are quick to take to each other under such circumstances, jealous of each other, and bitter, and even cruel they can be, but once let them be drawn towards each other by heart sorrow, and they can at once be all tenderness, all truth, all love. Men cannot understand this feeling, but women know how true it is. Mrs. Slark came to the chair on which I was seated, and taking my hand, she grasped it warmly, saying in trembling accents, This does me good. It breaks the ice, as it were. It thaws me. For the first time in many years, I will once more gaze upon that portrait. Often in my solitude have I been tempted to do so before, but I felt that I dare not while alone. She advanced to the wall drew back the dusty velvet, and disclosed the portrait of a gentleman. Time and neglect had laid their destroying hands on the picture, but the face was perfect. It was that of a man in the meridian of life. The forehead was massive, bespeaking intelligence, but the eyes were the largest and strangest eyes I ever saw. It seemed to me as if there was something weird and even supernatural in them, and so faithfully had the artist done his work that, Even after the long lapse of years, they seemed to glow from the canvas with a living light. When Mrs. Slark drew the velvet, she turned deadly pale, trembled violently, and fixed her gaze on the painting. When some minutes had passed, and seeing how violently agitated she was, I arose, and, going to her, I laid my hand on her shoulder, saying softly, You do not seem well. The portrait evidently affects you. She relinquished her hold of the velvet, which fell into its place again, then. As I led her to a seat, she burst into tears. I did not speak again for some moments. I knew it was better she should weep. Forgive my weakness, she said at last. But the sight of that portrait has strangely affected me. Dare I inquire the cause of a sorrow so great as yours? I asked. "'Yes,' she answered. "'I feel that it would do me good to impart to another the secret I have so long pent up in my own breast. "'Ah, how terribly a man may blight a woman's life!' "'I assented to this with a sigh. "'The original of that portrait was my husband. "'It is now nearly thirty years since I was married to him, "'but he was not my first love.' You know we women say that a woman never gets her first love, and no doubt it's true. He whose bride I hoped to become had been acquainted with me from my earliest girlhood. His name was Meredith, Walter Meredith. He was highly gifted, a poet of no mean order, and somewhat of a dreamer. One day, when he came to see me, he was much distressed. I asked him what had upset him, and he said I should laugh if he told me. I urged him, however, and he informed me that we should never become man and wife. "'But why?' I exclaimed. "'Well,' he continued, somewhat reluctantly, Three times running, I have dreamed a dream.'" In spite of my promise, I could not help laughing, and said, banteringly, "'Surely you are of sterner stuff than those who are affected by dreams?' "'I tell you, Lydia,' he answered." I have dreamed this dream three times running, I thought that I had a false friend, who outwardly had a smooth and honest face, but in my dream I was permitted to see another face beneath that one, and it was a bad, cruel, deceitful face, and wherever he went I saw burning above his head like a halo, the word death in letters of fire, and the end of this dream each night was that the strange man seized me in his powerful arms, and hurled me into space. And down I sank, sank, plunging into horrid darkness, until, when the climax of agony was reached, I awoke with a start, and found myself bathed in perspiration." I laughed again as he finished, but he assured me that the dream had made a singular impression upon him, and it had begotten him a pre that he could not shake off. About six months after he had related this extraordinary dream to me, my only brother, who had been traveling in Italy, returned, bringing with him an Italian friend, who was visiting England for the first time. His name was Carlo Garcia, and he became our guest. It is useless for me to attempt to deny the fact, and equally useless to attempt to explain it. The fact is that that man, Carlo Garcia, exercised an extraordinary fascination over me. He was highly educated, but withal a mystic, and he had done something more than dabble in those things which are supposed to be beyond the reach of our human intellect. He was a brilliant conversationalist, a pleasant companion, and there were few subjects that were beyond his grasp. He came to us for a few weeks, but he and my brother were soon so attached that his stay stretched into months. His charm of manner and conversation seemed to influence all with whom he came in contact, and though I used to think Meredith was sometimes jealous of him, even he convinced to admiring him. Near the end of the fifth month of Garcia's stay with us, and when the day for my wedding with Walter Meredith was drawing near, the terrible news came to us one morning that Walter's body— shattered almost out of recognition, had been found at the base of some tremendous chalk cliffs that rose up from the seashore near our residence. You see, I speak calmly now, but that event threatened for some time not only my reason, but my life. Over the cliffs a pathway ran, and this was a favorite walk of Walter's. In one part of the edge of the cliffs was a great notch, as though a piece had been scooped out with a huge gauge. The gap sloped at a steep angle for a dozen yards or so, then ended abruptly, and went down two hundred feet perpendicularly. It was at the foot of this place that Meredith's body was found lying on the hard shingle, which was reddened with his blood. Investigation proved beyond doubt that he slipped down the gap I have spoken of, but no investigation brought to light how he came to go down there. A month later, Garcia returned to Italy and I saw nothing of him again for a whole year, when, unexpectedly, he presented himself at our house, and within a very short time after he began to talk love to me. The old fascination he had once exercised over me revived, and though I could not forget my dead love, I found myself falling under this strange man's influence, and when one day he asked me to become his wife, I was not so much surprised as alarmed, i say alarmed because somehow i could not shake off a vague feeling of dread that i entertained for him i could not possibly have defined this dread but i knew that it existed and i was so ashamed of it because my people were wrapped up in him that i kept it to myself he spoke to my father and mother and brother and as they were in favour of the union and as he vowed that he would never know a moment's happiness unless i became his i consented Then he kissed me for the first time, and never shall I forget to my dying day the extraordinary thrill contact with his lips produced in me. It was not a thrill of pleasure, but pain, and that night, in the solitude of my own room, I asked myself whether I truly loved the man. I was conscious that he had exerted some strange power over me, and though I was fascinated, I could not determine if I loved him. She paused here, and presently said, But perhaps my story is boring you? On the contrary, I exclaimed. I assure you I am deeply interested. Well, I will be brief. We were married. My wedding day, however, did not make me feel happy. My thoughts wandered back to the Halcyon days, when I had given my heart to the man who then lay moldering in his grave. I almost brought myself to believe that, by accepting the love of another, I was desecrating the dead man's memory. The marriage bells did not make music to my ears, but sounded harsh and inharmonious. And what struck me as being extraordinarily strange then was that my husband appeared melancholy. Outwardly, he was all gaiety, but it was forced. We went on the continent for our honeymoon, and the kindness and tenderness Carlo displayed entirely changed me, so that when we returned, I felt that I had loved him truly. But I noted with alarm that he was sinking into a state of morbid melancholy. He told me it was the effects of overstudy. He was engaged in drawing a chart of the heavens, astronomy being a subject in which he was passionately interested. We returned home, and settled down in a charming little retreat near Edinburgh, My husband, however, gradually grew worse. His eyes assumed a wild, vacant stare, and his face became deathly pale, while white threads appeared in his black hair. He would walk the garden which surrounded the house in the wildest storm, his eyes ablaze, his arms beating the air. I grew terribly alarmed, and consulted a physician, but Carlo declined to see him. In the course of six months, this young and handsome husband of mine had become a prematurely old man. His whole nature, too, had changed. He was irritable, fretful, and neglected me. I saw clearly that something was affecting his mind, but, though I saw the effect, I was powerless to discover the cause. One evening, when we were sitting together, he suddenly sank on his knees with a wild cry of despair, and, covering his face with his hands, he exclaimed, Spare me, spare me, for mercy's sake, spare me. I almost fainted with fright, but rushing to him, I asked him what was the matter. He was bathed in perspiration, his eyes were wild, his face and lips blanched, and he had a dazed, stunned appearance. I helped him to a chair and revived him with stimulants, but he could not or would not give me any reasons for his strange attack. From that hour, he seemed to grow more and more melancholy, and I had him closely watched, for I felt sure insanity was approaching. The denouement came at last. It was a Sunday evening. I had been to church, leaving Carlo at home, for he would not be persuaded to go with me. A sullen, gloomy day had culminated in a night of storm. A fierce gale drove in from the sea, bringing heavy squalls of rain with it our house was much exposed and very lonely standing as it did by itself on an elevation with lofty trees surrounding it we kept a large watchdog, and on this particular night he howled and whined in a matter altogether unusual i too seemed to be the victim of some extraordinary nervousness which was increased or possibly engendered by the howling of the dog the screeching wind the rustling of the trees and the beating rain i had already sent one of the servants to try and calm the dog but her efforts had been fruitless and working up at last to a state of unbearable irritation i begged my husband to go out unchain the poor brute and bring him into the kitchen somewhat reluctantly he consented to do this and threw a mackintosh over his shoulders as he opened the door a furious gust of wind whirled a heap of leaves into the hall and at the same moment there was a terrific crash and something came thundering down close to the steps carlo rushed back into the room his face livid his hair almost standing on end and he sank helpless into a chair i went into the hall to try and close the door and i found that a pine tree had been torn up by the roots and hurled across the pathway When I returned, my husband was sitting in the same position. I tried to soothe him. I pressed his head to my bosom. I bathed his temples and spoke words of comfort. Suddenly he started up, and pushing me away, exclaimed, Lydia, do not touch me. You are an angel of mercy, but I am lost, lost. I have deceived you, but can do so no longer. My secret has tortured me with the torture of the damned. Your lover... Meredith was slain by me. I pushed him over the cliff because I was jealous of him, and I wanted you for myself. Since then, he has haunted me. He screamed out here and pointed to a long window that opened onto a lawn, and at which the curtains had not been drawn. Almost mechanically, I turned to where he pointed, and whether it was that my imagination had been wrought up to a morbid condition by what I had gone through, and the awful revelation I had just listened to, I know not, but this I vow is true. In the blackness of the window, I saw a shadowy form. Then my husband sank to the floor with a groan. Will this torture never end? he muttered. When I looked at the window again, the figure had gone. There was an appalling silence in the room then, a silence broken only by the furious beating of my own heart, which I distinctly heard and by the clock on the mantelpiece the heavy ticking of which seemed to me like the sounds of an axe ringing on a steel plate i was rooted to the spot unable to move hand or limb a spell seemed to have been set upon me oh the horror of that moment it was as if every second was an age i found myself looking at my husband his face was ghastly His eyes were bent fixedly on the window. He was gasping for breath, and seemed to be choking, and I have a recollection that I tried to speak, but my tongue refused utterance. I closed my eyes at last to shut out the horror of that man's face. Then I experienced a sensation as if I was being whirled round and round with tremendous velocity. Once more I opened my eyes and looked at him. He had not moved. His face seemed to have become more ghastly. The blue veins stood out on his temples like cords. His eyes appeared to glow with absolute fire. I felt then that if the spell was not broken, I should fall down dead. Suddenly, a mist seemed to rise from the floor. All things faded from my sight, and there was a blank. I had swooned. How long I lay there, I know not, but it must have been a long time, for when I awoke, the eastern light was breaking. My hair was disheveled, and the front of my dress was covered with clotted blood. I had evidently bled from the nostrils, and I suppose that had saved my life. Then the horror of all I had endured rushed through my brain. I feared to look round lest I should again see his awful face. I called him by his name. There was no answer. Then, with an all but superhuman effort, I turned to where I had last seen him but he had gone, and I was alone. For many hours after, I lay in a raging fever. Kind friends flitted round my bed, and ministered to my wants, but he came not. I feared to ask the question that trembled on my lips. Where was he? At length my attendants seemed to come and go with a stealthier tread. I saw strangers in the room, and people spoke in mysterious whispers i could bear the suspense no longer where is my husband i cried each one turned to the other and seemed to be communicating by strange signals tell me i repeated where is my husband you shall know soon they answered i will know now i shrieked as springing from the bed and breaking away from them i rushed to his room and saw him then saw him dead and in his coffin. I had a serious relapse, and for a long time fluttered between life and death, but my time had not come, and slowly I recovered. Then I learned that on the morning following that awful night he had been found at the bottom of the garden, lying on his face, stark and dead, with the blue blood oozing from his mouth. As you may imagine, that place was fraught with too much that was painful for me to remain there and for a long time i travelled about with my mother until she died and soon after i lost my only brother the charm of life had now gone for me the world could give no pleasure and so at last i came here to bury myself in solitude with an old and faithful servant who will remain with me as long as i live and in order to lose my identity as far as possible i assumed the name of a relative I listened with absorbed interest to this remarkable story, which was told with striking, dramatic power. She was the better for having told me her history, for her solitude and the burden of her secret had become unbearable. From that hour, a strong friendship sprang up between us, and it resulted in my going to live with her. The friendship was uninterrupted for half a dozen years. Then I nursed her in a brief illness, which terminated in her sudden death she had willed her property to me, and the first thing I did was to utterly destroy the portrait of Carlo Garcia, for it filled me with a sense of horror. I had looked upon it once, and once only. That was on the morning, when I first made the acquaintance of Mrs. Slark, but after I knew her story, the veiled portrait became for me an object of dread, and I felt relieved when I knew it had been put out of existence. End of story seventeen. Recording by Annibal Smith.